From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker, and it is now nearly three weeks that the House has gone without a speaker since the stunning ouster of Kevin McCarthy, waged by eight rebel Republicans, and Democrats joined them and and threw the House into chaos. We've now gone through two Republican nominees, both of whom are now out. We have a whole new crop of candidates who have jumped into the race over the weekend, As we tape on Monday, House Republicans are going to huddle behind closed doors Monday night to have a candidates forum to debate who the best potential nominee would be. So here we go again. We're back to the drawing boards. Who knows how long this is going to take, but patience is wearing thin. And at the same time, the White House has now released a $106 billion supplemental spending bill for Ukraine and Israel and more. Can they even get to that without a speaker in the House? We're going to talk about all of that. Joining me for this conversation is Laura Weiss, the tax policy editor at CQ Roll Call, who's been covering the speaker's race day and night. Thanks for being here, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having me. And again, Paul Krozak, a senior budget writer at CQ Roll Call, who knows everything all the time. Thanks for being here, Paul. I don't know about that, but good to be here. So, folks, here we are again. Uh, I think our, the predictions we made last week was that we'd have a speaker by now. That is not the case. We are still here struggling. Republicans are in chaos. There's been all kinds of tension in the room, backbiting, nasty words being exchanged, uh, a lunge, apparently, against uh, Matt Gates, the rebel, the rebel leader who ousted McCarthy. It's, it's gotten pretty ugly. Tempers are flaring. Sunday was the deadline for entering the race for all the new candidates. We have nine new candidates to chew over. Laura, where do you think things stand right now? Yeah, so I think part of when you mentioned we thought there might be a speaker, I think part of what shifted was we saw that some members who are more moderate or just tend to be sort of party line uh, kind of members who stick with Republicans on whatever they're doing really made a strong stand here against Jim Jim Jordan. Um, And, you know, part of that was Jim Jordan's policies, but part of that was just the sort of nastiness of how this race has gone to replace Kevin McCarthy. There's just a lot of bad blood, a lot of, um, you know, frustration among Republicans on how they've sort of treated each other. And um, so I think coming into this week, we'll see if that sort of was confined to Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, you know, that kind of back and forth kind of cleared the air a little bit. Now we have, as you mentioned, nine new candidates, or if some of that is still lingering. Um, It's not really clear how anyone can get to a majority of, or I mean, it's clear they can get to a majority of the conference. It's not clear how they can get the votes on the floor of the majority of the house they need. Um, it's become clear that sort of the more toward the center centrist members of the party and the farther right members of the party just have really different perspectives, not just on necessarily policy, but I think how they want to govern, the strategies they want to employ. Um, So we're kind of seeing that create divisions along with the just very typical 
personal issues associated with a race like this. Yeah, it's a mess. Um, but so let's get to it. I mean, there are nine new people in the race, Paul. Uh, I would think that the the quasi front runner, based on leadership status, is Tom Emmer of Minnesota, uh, because he is the majority whip already. That's the number three House Republican. He used to head the National Republican Congressional Committee. That's the campaign arm. So he's well positioned within the party. You know, he's got the seniority. He got a strong endorsement from Kevin McCarthy, including over the weekend on Meet the Press, who said he's, you know, he's the guy up for the job. He won't need any, it won't be a speaker in training, uh, stressing his experience. But I don't know, Paul, is, uh, Emmer has his share of foes also. He's likely to get the most votes, probably. Um, but, of course, the question is, can he get to 217? Um, it, it only takes really a, a small handful of Republicans to prevent anybody from getting to 217. Right, as we've seen twice now. And uh, Representative Matt Gates, I think, a couple days ago said he has no regrets about really the, the rebellion he led which deprived McCarthy of the speakership. So we can ever get to 217. We, we don't know. Um, I mean, I think it, there are really only a few options here. Somebody gets to 217 um, in the conference, or they could look again at trying to elect Patrick McHenry uh, as a uh, uh, speaker pro tem for a number of weeks or months, right. giving him added powers. And it might, it probably would take Democratic votes to do that. At some point, Republicans might have to um, ask for Democrats' votes. Right. That is that is sort of the fallback option that's been out there for a couple of weeks now, I think. Uh, but there have not been any sign of the intense bipartisan negotiations it would take to get a deal on that, to actually give McHenry these added powers so that the House could get back to business. That seems to be in a wait-and-see posture, while Republicans seem adamant that they want to elect their own speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Laura, where, where are we on uh, – what do you make of Emmer's candidacy? You think he he is the most likely to get the nomination? Yeah, I think Paul's right in that he clearly enters with advantages here – um, his background leading Republicans campaign arm, his status and leadership, those are things that would probably comfort some members uh, and, and win him some support. But I think with a field of nine, it really is who knows. And I think the question here is, you know, could Emmer really get all the way there if it looks like there is any opposition forming? Does that create some anxiety even for some of the members who might support him? But I think there are Republicans who are really getting antsy about doing this over and over again and over and over again so publicly. That being said, I don't think they have a solution um, to, the, you know, a, another option really than continuing to do this. Um, but I think there are some other you know, members in that nine who, whether it's after considering Emmer or, you know, before it could, could emerge. Um, some examples 
You have Kevin Hearn, who leads the Republican Study Committee. He's very conservative. His name had been kind of thrown around um, for a bit now. Someone like Byron Donalds, who has some support. He's gotten speaker votes before more from sort of a, you know, we need somebody because we're going to oppose the guy who got the bid, uh, who got the nomination. But um, those are just a couple of the nine. And so there's really a wide range here. And I think with a field that large, it's sort of hard to tell how it could go, even just the next yeah, few Yeah, they have to winnow down the nine, I think, and do multiple rounds of voting to come up with a nominee. We should say on Ammer, though, uh, he, I think the downside there is he does have a Donald Trump problem, right? Um, I mean, Trump was angry at him because because Ammer, I think, was on, was practically the only one of these nine. I think there was one other, Austin Scott, who uh, actually voted to certify the 2020 election results, which doesn't sit well in the Trump camp. All the other candidates in this race voted to decertify the results. That's that's where this Republican Party is these days in the House. Emmer, however, voted to certify, which which angered the whole Trump world. And the question is there, of course, how much does that matter? Are pro-Trump members willing to overlook that in light of Emmer's seniority and the need to get the House back to business? Or is that a is that a thorn in their side that they're not going to be able to swallow here? to mix my metaphors, and, and they just can't support him. We don't know. We should say, you know, Trump was a solid back of Jim Jordan, and that didn't work either, right? Right. I mean, I think, you know, one thing, you raise an important point, and I think some some of the members who tend to be more willing to challenge leadership kind of go rogue, um, includes often some members of the House Freedom Caucus that Jim Jordan helped found. You know, I think they've really shown clearly with McCarthy and then with Scalise a willingness to take a stand against someone and to be patient in opposing them for a long amount of time until they feel comfortable supporting someone. And I think some of those issues have been with McCarthy. One thing that was talked about a lot was a lack of trust of some of those members. And it's a little bit unclear, I think, at this point, if Tom Emmer being in leadership during this whole period sort of ends up a knock against him with some of those members, um, as well as, like you mentioned, the Trump dynamic. And I think what we saw with Jim Jordan was then more typically rank and file and centrist members being willing to take up that playbook. So I think it's pretty hard to imagine right now a candidate that really solidly makes both ends of the party feel comfortable and and trusting Um, because that's what a lot of this is about, those personal qualities. But it seems like it could be possible, but I don't know that that person is Tom Emmer. Yeah, that's the real dilemma, right? I mean, they have such a narrow majority of 221 members in a 435-member house, although there's a couple vacancies. They can only afford to lose like four members of their own Republican camp and still get a majority vote, which means they need practically every vote there is on the Republican side. And nobody, nobody has been able to unify them to that way because the Republican conference has been divided all this year. They've never really been unified. 
So that is the real the real dilemma. And you do see a, a variety of of I, the ideological spectrum in these candidates, right? Because you you did mention the other candidates include Kevin Hearn, who who heads the largest block of the conservatives called the Republican Study Committee, versus a Byron Donalds, who's also in this race, who's part of the Freedom Caucus, which is the ultra right, more rebellious group. And then you have potentially, I'd say, a dark horse candidate who represents more of the establishment. I would think it's fair to say. Uh, uh, Mike Johnson of Louisiana, who I think is the conference vice chair, so he's got some seniority. He's a senior member on the Judiciary Committee, who's worked with Jim Jordan. He's worked with all sides. I, my impression is, I don't that he's pretty well regarded within the conference. He's very soft spoken. I don't think most people would ever know of him. He's not a household name. I could see him as a potential dark horse here, but who knows? And you've got some of the other candidates in there who've thrown their names in the in the ring that probably have virtually no chance that will probably get eliminated early. But those are probably, I'd say, maybe the four to watch. Is that fair to say among this group? I think that's fair to say. I think, um, you know, with the caveat that we'll see who emerges quickly here, which could almost be, we could be in for another week of of somebody trying to get to 217, failing. You know, one thing last week was Patrick McHenry, who is the speaker pro tempore right now. He said a couple of times that he thought that Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan both kind of deserved more time to try to shore up their support on the floor. Uh, So I think one thing we'll see is how impatient are Republicans getting? Are they willing to give somebody the time to go say, 15 rounds on the House floor like Kevin McCarthy did in January and do some of that deal making or not. I I think part of the reason Jim Jordan ended up, you know, out of the race is that it was clear a good chunk of the members who opposed him wanted nothing. Yeah. And and Jim Jordan had three rounds of voting and he and he did worse each time they voted. Right. So there wasn't much incentive to continue. So I, when when McHenry says he deserved more time, geez, I don't know what else could he have could you do there unless he was really going to start cutting deals that no one wanted anymore after the McCarthy debacle, when, when everyone said he double crossed them on the deals he made. So it, it's a real dilemma. You could argue Scalise didn't get enough time because he bowed out early, but that's sort of water over the bridge now too. I guess Paul, there's also the option. Of, there's been you know you hear sometimes talk of. McCarthy running again, right? Coming in as the great white knight savior. But I frankly don't see that happening. And McCarthy has never tried to suggest he's prepared to do that right now. Well, yeah. I mean, one thing we've heard about McCarthy is that, I mean, since he was deposed, he's lost support. So um, so he's not going to have the votes, uh, most likely. There's no indication that Scalise has any interest in coming back. And, you know, I think something that's ironic is, you know, one of the stated reasons for deposing McCarthy was that the House had not passed enough appropriation of enough of the regular 12 appropriations bills. The House passed four. The Senate hasn't passed any yet. Um, By the end of this week, we will have gone almost almost a month without a speaker. This was this will have been four weeks when the House could have tried to make progress on passing additional yeah. appropriations. But, um, and it's basically, it's, it's going to be four weeks spent fighting over a speaker and maybe longer. You raise a good point because November 17 is the deadline when the current funding runs out 
under the continuing resolution, and they're, they're obviously going to need another continuing resolution because there's no way they're getting this done. And at the same time, Paul, the White House has now requested an additional $106 billion in emergency funding, mostly for Ukraine, but also for Israel, also for humanitarian aid and a few other things, border security money, huge package. What happens to that? Well, so, I mean, we think that'll probably start in the Senate, but the the House can't do anything um, until it has until it has a speaker or a elected speaker pro tem with with stated powers. Now, there is an argument that the speaker pro tem does have power to preside and do things that speakers do. Uh, But McHenry has said that um, he is not going to entertain that. He is not going to try to exert any power without, without a vote. So you would have we'd have to go back to what we were talking about earlier, which would be a uh, vote to empower McHenry. Yeah, but before we just dismiss that big spending package, uh, you know, it, yes, you're right. It has to. It's, it's going to start in the Senate, I think, by default, right? Because the House can't function, and the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he's not going to wait on the House. They're going to get it going. He said it's going to take a few weeks, though, and. In the meantime, we're go- it's going to be a huge battle, right? Because Republicans are not happy with this package. Everybody's for aiding Israel, but this is a much bigger package. And you had folks like Tim Scott, the Republican senator from South Carolina running for president, spinning it that it was unfair that Ukraine got so much more money than Israel would get. You know, his point was Ukraine, He's asked, Biden was asking for over $60 billion more for Ukraine and Israel's amount was like $14 billion. Although I think you have to look at what, what the needs actually are in those countries at the time and what, they, what the countries themselves say they need. But Scott was clearly unhappy and there is this Republican reticence to imp- approve any more money for Ukraine as eager as they are to help Israel. Where do you think that lands, Paul? Because we also saw, I think it was at least nine Republican senators come out and say, You've got you, you've got to decouple these. We're not we're not doing we're not going to tie down Israeli aid with the big fight over Ukraine. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I mean, so clearly there's going to be a battle over this in the Senate before it even gets out of the Senate. I mean, you just look at the the Senate wants to uh, pass a three bill appropriations package, and they have been behind closed doors arguing over amendments to that package for the past several weeks. Um, It's possible that uh, they might reach an agreement and be able to bring that package onto the floor, but so far they have been unable to. And that's, I mean, that's a three-bill package, which is relatively non-controversial. These are three of the the regular appropriations bills you're talking about that have stalled for weeks. They can't even get off the ground. But the much bigger fight now is going to be over this supplemental package. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's going to be a fight. And, um, uh, you know, we'll, I mean, it's obviously, obviously it will be changed from what the White House has requested. Uh, They always are. But, um, you know, will they be able to, um, you know, downsize it and still have all the elements or will they have to separate it? We'll see. 
Yeah, and and of course that does depend on the House getting back to business so it can take up a, a big spending package like that, and then the fight will be even more vicious in the House because the House Republicans really uh, now dislike the Ukraine aid, which used to be a bipartisan thing, right? And 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 just recently it's turned much more partisan, where Republicans are saying no, no more. Ukraine should be on its own or or with allies, but not not more of our money. There's growing impatience in the in the Republican caucus over Ukraine as it's fighting for its life against Russia. Uh, but that's that's where they are. Not sure how they resolve that, but they they clearly can't resolve that until there's a speaker. And that's why this budget podcast is now focusing for a second week on the speaker's race, because they're really frozen and they, they're unable to do anything budget related until there's a speaker. So, Laura, final thoughts from you. How would you size up this race now? Who's the most likely? What's the most likely game game plan here or end game to get out of this mess? Yeah, well, I think if I knew how to get a speaker, uh, that might be above my pay grade. But uh, I will say, I think this is entering a stage where perhaps it could be getting closer to the final stage. I think in retrospect now, the initial fallout from the ousting of Kevin McCarthy really did sully the early part of this race and initial candidacies. And I think we'll see if these candidates are able to sort of come at it with a little bit less baggage. So it it could be more possible that someone's able to get there, but I think we're probably going to still see a few more rounds. I don't think this is going to be a quick or easy process this week. I don't think it's clear it's going to end this week, you know, there's still a lot to get to. And now you have people fanning out, you know, supporting their candidate over nine people. And I think one thing the last few weeks have shown is when someone finds someone that, you know, these people have not necessarily been running for this, preparing for this as long as Kevin McCarthy was able to back in, you know, before January. And so I think people may sort of if they have the option of someone from their state or someone that they really feel strongly about, it's been shown over the last few weeks, it can be hard to move on from. So I think we're in for still a lot of ups and downs here and still uh, quite a week ahead. And I think, as Paul mentioned, if they are going to come back to the idea of empowering Patrick McHenry, I think we're going to have to see a lot, a lot more happen before that comes onto the table because it's something Republicans are really uh, spooked by. So I think still a lot of process to go. Yeah. And, and Democrats have said they would want to see a deal on the table, I think, or, and rules changes in the House if they were to sign on to a, any kind of uh, expanded power from McHenry, uh, which further muddies the water here as to whether they could even negotiate that. Paul, final thoughts from you where this is headed. Yeah, no, I would just underscore what Laura said. I think some kind of temporary speaker pro tem arrangement might be might might be where might be where they end up, but we'll see. And let me ask you both to make a, a, the same prediction I asked you to make last week, and we'll see how we fared this time. Which is, as we tape on Monday, by next Monday, will we see a new speaker of the House elected? Laura? I'm not optimistic right now that that is uh, possible. I think with all the candidates in the mix, 
unless one is able to emerge very, very cleanly with the majority, it seems like it would be pretty tricky to build the necessary support, lock down all of the votes, and do that all this week. We certainly you know, saw even with Jim Jordan's attempt to get there, even though he didn't, uh, that was a more protracted process from when he sort of was running, became the nominee, was going to the floor. So I think it would be pretty tough to meet that timeline. But, you know, they've also been leaving for the weekend and, and we'll see if that changes, see if there are additional things uh, that bring more pressure into this situation. And as we get closer and closer to November 17th, the pressure will certainly rise. Ooh, a more somber tone from Laura this week than her, her more sunny prediction last week. That's interesting. Paul, speaker by next Monday or no? Yeah, no, I would say no. Also, uh, maybe maybe they resolve this by the uh, by the end of uh, of next week, maybe by November, early November, early November, when they're only a couple of weeks away from the expiration of the current funding law. Wow. Well, on that cheery note, uh, we are out of time. If you like what you hear here, you can subscribe to the CQ Budget newsletter. Uh, which hits your inbox every morning that Congress is in session. You can find that at CQ.com. Thank you to Paul Krozak and Laura Weiss for joining me again. Thanks, folks. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. You can find all of our coverage at CQ.com or RollCall.com. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. See you next time. <laughs>